This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to episode 333 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you for joining me today. If you saw it on Saturday, I hope you enjoyed my little April Fool's joke. But unfortunately, I will not be bringing you a Sewing Madness podcast. Today's case from London is a story of tragedy, frustration and frankly anger at a system. A huge thank you to Gemma Gould for researching and writing this episode. Before we start, I just want to bring your attention to an outstanding true crime podcast out there you may not have listened to yet. It's called The Troubles. The host, Oshin, talks about individual events in Northern Ireland during that time and covers the stories incredibly well. I know from the stories that I covered around The Troubles how so many of these stories rightly provoke very strong emotion in a number of people. But Ocean's neutral, non-partisan approach allow him to get to the real heart of the story. His most recent episode is fantastic. It's about John Crawley, who joined the US Marines with the intention of bringing back the expertise learnt to the IRA. But things didn't work out as planned. Why not take a listen now at the Troubles podcast? Before we begin, let's set some context with our ever-popular Guest of the Month and Year game. Number one album spot in the UK charts was Wonderland by McFly, You Loved It, with the number one single being taken by Gorillaz with their single Dare. In the US, the self-proclaimed Queen of Christmas, really, Mariah Carey, was sitting in the top spot with We Belong Together. And in Australia, the best-selling single this year was Anthony Kalia with The Prayer. This month saw the England cricket team beat Australia and win the Ashes for the first time since 1987. This was, of course, the days before the cricket authorities sold out for more money, meaning that casual cricket fans no longer watched the game or follow the team. Films released this year included Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, again, War of the Worlds, and Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Egypt held their first presidential election and Hong Kong Disneyland opened. Have you been there? So did you guess the month and year? It was, of course, September 2005. Knightsbridge is one of the most affluent areas of London, and in fact the UK. It boasts 14 of the 200 most expensive streets to live on, with average house prices today sitting at a cool £4 million. Described as a designer shopper's paradise, it is home to Primark, sorry, it's home to the world-famous Harrods store, amongst other high-end retailers. As is often the case, where there is money, there is crime, and this area has been the location of some of the most high-profile crimes in recent history. It was the area of the Iranian embassy siege, the security depot heist in 1987, and as previously covered on this podcast, the Marlborough Diamond heist of course, an episode which you and I loved. 
The 13th of September 2005 was not particularly unusual. It was just another ordinary day. Harvey Nichols had been bustling with shoppers, keen to stock up on their favourite must-haves, and as the day was drawing to a close, 22-year-old Claire Bernal was finishing up her shift in the beauty department. With just 10 minutes to go, there were a few customers still milling around, and Claire and her colleagues were, of course, looking forward to the end of another day. One of Claire's colleagues noticed a figure approach Claire from behind and presumed it was her boyfriend meeting her after work. The colleague did not see anything suspicious and it was not unusual for friends, relatives and partners to come to the shop as closing time approached. However, this was no romantic meeting. The man had one thing on his mind and it was murder. In a flash, he produced a handgun from his pocket, carefully took aim and shot Claire in the back of the head. He then shot her three more times in the face, shot one bullet in the ceiling, and finally using the last bullet in the chamber, he turned the gun on himself. But why would anyone want to shoot a 22-year-old beauty consultant at her place of work before taking their own life? Let's take a step back to try to understand what could possibly have led to this horrendous event. Claire had landed her dream job at the prestigious and glamorous Harvey Nichols after graduating from Northumbria University in the northeast of England. Having been born and raised in Tunbridge Wells, like so many before her, the allure of the life of the West End of London appealed to Claire, a place, as you know if you go there sometimes, where sometimes anything seems possible. After moving the job, Claire moved to Dulwich in south-east London sharing a flat with two of her work colleagues and she quickly adjusted to London life. She adored the hustle and bustle and the sheer excitement that living in London can bring to so many people. The bars, the nightlife, the restaurants and the people she met. But above all else, she adored her job. Claire was so proud to work at Harvey Nichols that she would tell everyone she met that she was a beauty consultant there. Life was really taken off for Claire. She had a dream job, she had much-loved friends, and her whole life was ahead of her, filled with possibilities. Claire was attractive with a fun, outgoing personality, and she naturally attracted attention. Including from her security guard at Harvey Nichols, a man named Michael Pesch. Pesch finally plucked up the courage, and in January 2005 he asked Claire out for a date. He seemed like a nice guy and Claire readily agreed. On the surface all seemed well and the date seemed to have gone really well and the slightly older Pesh was extremely charming and attentive. Any niggling doubts that Claire had about his slightly possessive behaviour that surfaced after the first date were quickly pushed to one side. Pesh was clearly infatuated with her and Claire was flattered. But alarm bells started to ring for Claire in a big way when after only three dates, Pesh told her that he loved her. From here, his controlling behaviour escalated in a very concerning way. He would strongly encourage Claire not to go out for her friends and demanded to know where she was whenever he asked. After flying in from the airport one night, Pesh insisted that Claire meet him despite it being the early hours of the morning and not being the sort of person who wanted to cause any upset, Claire agreed to do so. 
That night, he insisted on staying over at Claire's flat, despite her saying no several times. And the next morning, he refused to leave the flat, eventually only doing so after Claire's flatmates intervened. Claire knew this was becoming a big problem, and the initial charm which had attracted her was gone. This wasn't what Claire wanted at all. After three weeks of dating, Claire had had enough, and after talking with her mum and her cousin about her concerns, she ended the relationship. But unfortunately, this was just the beginning of what was to come. Almost immediately after Claire told Pesh the relationship was not working, he bombarded her with calls, one time over 20 calls in just one day, all of which went unanswered. This clearly enraged Pesh, who sat outside her flat for two hours staring up at the windows. Eventually, Claire's flatmates persuaded him to leave under the threat of calling the police. Claire felt trapped. Everywhere she went, Pesh was there watching her. At work, he would use the mirrors to follow her around the department store, with his ever-watchful gaze directed at her every move. Outside work, he would simply follow her, or turn up at shops, bars, or even a train station, acting like a lion stalking its prey. At every chance he got, he tried to persuade Claire to rekindle their romance, even going as far as to rope in her colleagues at work to try to get her to give him another chance. One evening, as Claire was leaving work, Pesh followed her. Grabbing her shoulder, he spun her round and said, I love you, and I know that you love me too. When Claire told him she didn't, he replied, Yes, you do, you stupid little girl. Now, this felt like a significant deterioration in his behaviour, and Claire immediately rang her mum, frightened and confused, but believing she couldn't report him to the police as he had not physically harmed her, and she was concerned she'd be wasting police time. Claire decided that the best course of action was simply to ignore him. Over the next few weeks and months, Claire's health deteriorated. She began suffering repeated eye infections, insomnia due to fear, and she lost her appetite. As a result, her work was suffering, and she was repeatedly being told that she must improve at work. It is no understatement to say that she was on the edge. She was fearful of every shadow and every noise she heard. If she turned the corner, would he be there waiting for her? Was he outside on the streets when she opened the curtains in the morning? Was he lurking in the darkness? Claire just felt that she was living a total nightmare. The more that Claire ignored his calls, the more he bombarded her. Every text message he sent professed his love for her, even going as far as to send messages that read like they were together. One text sent in the run-up to Valentine's Day asked her how they should spend it together. Claire naturally was terrified. The realisation eventually dawned on Pesh that this tactic wasn't working, so he rapidly changed his approach. He started threatening Claire, trying to force her into taking him back, saying that if she didn't, he would kill himself. With one particularly menacing message stating, If I can't have you, then no one will. Pesh's campaign of terror reached a horrible new level on the 28th of March 2005. After finishing her shift, Clara headed to the tube station to make her way back home to her flat in Dulwich as normal. When on the tube platform, she spotted Pesh. 
fear surged through her body and her flight response took over as she ran away and quickly slipped onto the train only to find that Pesh had run after her and was in the same carriage. Claire once more tried to get away from him but he gave chase. Pleading now, she begged him to leave her alone saying that if he didn't she would report him. Coldly, he looked her straight in the eyes and replied, If you report me, I will kill you. Believing that reporting him would escalate the situation further, she convinced herself that once again the best thing to do would be to ignore him. Claire felt shame and blamed herself, thinking that maybe she had led him to believe that their relationship was more serious than she was feeling. Claire's behaviour dramatically changed after this incident, so much so that her flatmates, who had up to this point not been aware of how grave the situation was, became fraught with worry about her. Both Claire's mental health and her physical health were in a rapid state of decline. Going against Claire's wishes, her flatmates, two of who were colleagues at her work, reported Pesh to their boss. Pesh was moved to a different department on a different floor, but he still retained his job. And being moved did not deter Pesh, and he continued to find reasons to appear on the beauty floor. Claire could feel his eyes boring into the back of her when he would appear, and he took every available opportunity to stalk her, both at work and outside. Soon the head of security caught wind of what was happening, and was so concerned at what he was hearing he trained the cameras on Claire and Pesh. It didn't take long for him to see for himself the relentless harassment and stalking that Claire was being subjected to. He took the only action he could and suspended Pesh, but chillingly, on the way out of the department store after being suspended, Pesh casually asked a member of staff what the sentence was for murder in Britain. Alarmed by this, the staff member reported his comments to the head of security, who himself was an ex-police officer. He called Claire into his office immediately and finally managed to persuade her to report this to the police. The CCTV of Pesh stalking her at work was handed over to officers and Claire sat for hours explaining everything and sharing the call logs and text messages with the officers. Numerous people were interviewed as eyewitnesses to what had been going on as the police began to build a case. On the 6th of April 2005, Pesh was called into work where he was immediately fired by the head of security and waiting for him were the police who arrested him on suspicion of harassment. As he was escorted out of work in handcuffs, he gave Claire a wry smile, but Claire noticed that his eyes were absolutely not smiling. Claire confided in her family that she felt she had not done the right thing and she didn't want to get Pesh into trouble. She still somehow felt she was to blame for what was happening. But nevertheless, Pesh was charged and given a non-molestation order and released on conditional bail. He was told he was not allowed to contact Claire or attempt to contact her, and under no circumstances was he to approach her. This was little comfort for Claire. After all, he was back out on the streets and so far he'd ignored all her pleas to leave her alone. Claire could not get rid of the image of the anger she'd seen in those eyes as he'd been led so publicly away in handcuffs. Feeling unsafe in her own home, Claire and her flatmates decided to move to a different flat in Dulwich. 
As she was packing up her flat, she was horrified to see Pesh standing on her doorstep and she called the police who responded within moments, but despite this he had gone, disappearing back into the shadows. Claire just wondered how she could ever feel safe again. Only days later, on the 10th of April, Claire was in her new flat in a different part of Dulwich, when casually glancing out of the window, she was struck with terror as she saw Pesh standing on the pavement, his cold, dead eyes fixed on her. Panic was evident in her voice as she called 999. However, when the police arrived again, he was nowhere to be found. This time, though, officers suggested a proper search of the area with Claire riding in the back of the police car. And it didn't take long for Claire to point him out and Pesh was arrested for breaching his bail conditions and the non-molestation order. On the 19th of April, Pesh was charged with threats to kill, but he was released on bail again to await his trial. After he was released, he seemingly disappeared. Weeks passed by and there was no sound at all of Pesh. Claire's life began to return to normal. Her health improved, her work improved. And the Claire that everyone knew and loved was coming back gradually each day at a time. Claire's mum, Trisha, arranged a five-day break to Florence as a belated birthday present for Claire, which she called finally getting my daughter back. Things were finally looking up for Claire. Was the nightmare finally over? But as Claire dared to feel she had her life back, unbeknown to her, on the 11th of August, Pesh was travelling back to London by coach, a handgun in his luggage. It would later transpire that during the months that Pesh had been off the radar, he'd been back in his native Slovakia. A former soldier, he'd been attending weapons training and target practice at a firing range. Whilst in Slovakia, he'd obtained a firearms licence and bought and registered a handgun, the same one that now sat in his luggage, and which he smuggled across the border and into the UK. Pesh's trial was scheduled for the 31st of August. He was facing a charge of threats to kill and a charge of harassment. Claire was understandably apprehensive and scared to face him again, but her strength and determination won out. As she sat in the witness room, waiting for the trial to begin, the prosecutor encouraged her to drop the more serious charge of threats to kill, stating it would be difficult to prove as it boiled down to her word against his. Claire agreed to do this and readied herself to take to the witness stand and relay every detail of the hell she'd been through. It was a terrifying prospect. Then a last-minute reprieve came when moments before the trial was due to begin, Pesh changed his plea from one of not guilty to guilty. He admitted the harassment so no trial was necessary. Claire was of course hugely relieved and texted her friends and family, thank God it's all over. As Pesha pled guilty, he was released, albeit with certain conditions placed upon this release pending his sentence. Claire finally felt she could begin living again. The fear had gone. The months of endless torment were finally over. It was the 13th of September 2005 at 7.50pm at Harvey Nichols. One of Claire's colleagues signalled to her there were 10 minutes left to go of her shift 
and Claire gave her a beaming smile in response. Then everything changed. The shadowy figure behind Claire was not a boyfriend, it was Michael Pesh. Panic set in as the reality slowly dawned on Claire's colleague. Despite security being on the lookout for him, he'd managed to sneak in through a side door and he now stood looming behind her, a darkness in his fixated eyes. There was not enough time for anyone to warn Claire. Pesh produced his gun from his jacket pocket and shot Claire in the back of her head. He then shot her a further three times in the face as she lay dead on the floor. He then shot one round into the ceiling, the sound ricocheting around the department store, before turning the gun on himself. It had taken but a few short seconds for the violence to unfold, a few seconds for a life to be cut short. In an instant, Claire was dead. Trisha Banal, Claire's mum, was in bed. It was a quarter to three in the morning, she said. There was a loud knock and my partner opened the front door to find two policemen standing there. I came down in my dressing gown. They said, Claire's dead. Your daughter's been shot. I immediately knew it was Pesh. Claire's family and friends were of course left devastated and asking just how Pesh was free on the streets of London with a gun, how he got it past border control in the first place. Why had he been repeatedly released despite breaching bail conditions? So many questions, so many tears and so much anger. A coroner's inquest held in 2007 heard that Pesh, high on cocaine, had bypassed security and entered the store, shot Claire four times and shot himself with a handgun he'd smuggled into the country. It concluded that despite there being significant flaws in the handling of Pesh and that Claire had been unlawfully killed, her murder could, and I quote, not have been reasonably foreseen. Trisha was understandably bereft at this outcome and quickly took to effecting change. She began to look at other cases of women who were killed by their stalkers and realised she was not alone. Along with two other mums, she started a campaign to influence the system for harsher laws against stalking. Setting up the charity Protection Against Stalking, she successfully lobbied the then Prime Minister David Cameron to make stalking a criminal offence. And thanks to this pressure, in November 2012, stalking became a criminal offence for the first time. Trisha continues to tell Claire's story, determined that her daughter did not die in vain. The charity focuses on raising awareness of stalking, educating organisations and people of the dangers of stalking, and it runs a national helpline for victims of stalking. Trisha was awarded an MBE in 2021 for the incredible work she has carried out. So what do you make of today's case? I can almost guarantee that as you were listening, you had a sense of impending doom and you wanted to intervene to stop the actions which felt inevitable. Me too. I was so shocked to find out that stalking only became illegal in 2012. Did you know that? But more shocking still are the statistics around stalking. The latest reports show that over 1.1 million people are stalked every year in the UK, with 1 in 5 women becoming victims of stalking and 1 in 10 men. And remember, these are only the known reported cases. You hate to think how many others suffer in silence. Look, 
I've got no interest in piling on to the police at this time. As we know, thousands of police officers go to work every day and do an amazing job protecting all of us. But you do have to ask questions, right? Do you agree with the coroner? Or do you feel that the police could have done more to protect Claire? Claire's mum, Trisha, spoke about the time between Pesh appearing in court and the murder, saying, Basically, he was allowed to go away and plan my daughter's murder. At no point did my daughter get the protection she needed and deserved. Shortly after Claire's death, Scotland Yard issued a statement saying that the police could not be blamed for failing to predict that Pesh's stalking would turn to murder. But the charity refuge said in response that Claire's case is really no different from that of other victims of violent and abusive men. Indeed, they point out the horror, which is that two women a week are killed by a current or former partner, a statistic which, they say, is often directly due to the absence of proper police training and procedures for assessing the risk posed by stalkers or men who commit domestic violence. Claire Bernal did all that she could to stay safe, but the system failed to protect her, said Sandra Hawley, Refuge's chief executive. And Claire's mum, Tricia, agrees. Pesh had broken the law three times. He had demonstrated clearly obsessive behaviour, made specific threats to kill, and showing he had no fear of the police. Yet in all the months he was on bail, no one thought to check just what he was up to. What I want to know is, why? If you've been affected by anything in today's show, please see the show notes for links to the helpline and the charity website. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of the UK's 37th most popular UK true crime podcast. If you'd like to discuss today's case or anything else about UK true crime, please do head on over to our Facebook group where there are almost 90,000 of us ready to welcome you and discuss all things true crime 24-7. All times of day and night, we're there, we talk true crime. If you want more content, do head over to Patreon, where there are over 50 bonus episodes, the latest one was released this week, to choose from, for as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month. There are no strings attached, you can cancel any time, not that you would want to, of course just go to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. And a huge thank you to the new members of this exclusive club. That's Brent Robinson, Diane Faust, Amanda is back. Welcome back, Amanda. Erin Dwyer-Bond, happy 30th. And Cine Karjalainen. Thank you all so much for your support, which is so, so, so much appreciated. So that's all for me for another week. So on Tuesday... My story takes place off the northwest coast, so please do join me for that. Until then, all that's left for me to say is I hope you have a good week. And remember, despite all the others, <laughs> despite all the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now. <laughs>